Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. It's an important one today. I'm glad you're here. It's a good conversation. Syra Rao is my guest today. Syra's an activist, a filmmaker, a author. She's a little bit of everything. And we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation today, mostly about race in America, but also about guns and how we move forward. How do we make this world a little bit better for our kids? So Syra first came onto my radar because of a book that she and Regina Jackson co-wrote last year. It's called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. It's a book, you'll hear me talk about it in the interview with Syra, that is both very easy to read, it's very short and concise, you don't have to be a bookworm (laughs) to like this book, but at the same time, it is a very difficult read for a lot of people. It is a book about white supremacy in the United States, and specifically pointing the culpability at all of us for white supremacy. Essentially, the way that Syra and Regina lay it out in the book is that there is a system where white men are at the top, black women are at the bottom, and everybody else falls somewhere in between. And that system informs so much of our daily life and has for generations. I mean, you can't talk about the founding of America without understanding these systems. And that's a big piece of it, right? It's This book says it's everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. And I think that's why it's a difficult read, is it's a lot of things that go unspoken in this country. It's a lot of things that people would choose not to acknowledge because it means that through our very existence, depending on where we fall on the spectrum of of race, we are holding other people down. We are holding other people back. And it's not intentional. It's institutional. But we have a role to play in upholding it, or we have a role in dismantling it. So I read that book, White Women, as part of a book club in my kids' school. Uh, a parent in our school had, had read it as part of a separate book club. She brought it to, to my kids' school. I participated in a book club there. I told my wife about it. She brought it to her school, did a book club there. It has been spreading through our community like crazy over the last several months. So yeah, it's, it's heavy, but it's necessary. The book came out of work that Syra and Regina have been doing since 2019 with a group they founded called Race to Dinner where essentially they will go to the home of a white woman and meet with other white women to discuss race and talk about racism in this country. And again, it's things that people know but are not always willing to acknowledge or choose to not acknowledge. Those dinners got contentious, but they were also very popular. A lot of people wanted to have them. So Syra and Regina wrote this book as a means to sort of spread the knowledge within those dinners to a broader audience. And then they made a film called Deconstructing Karen, which really looks at what happens during those dinners and gives you a sense of how those dinners work. So I've seen the film. It's a great watch. I love the book. It took a while, honestly, to to absorb everything that was being said and uh to, to understand all of this and to start to dismantle it in my own life. But I hope 
that you will stick with this conversation today. I hope you will go and read White Women after this. I hope you'll go and watch the film Deconstructing Karen because it is necessary work and it's work that every single one of us has a role to play. And that includes me. That includes all of you. And that includes Syra. I mean, she acknowledges it in this conversation that she was raised in this white supremacist culture. She had a certain viewpoint on this world and it took a lot of work on her part to dismantle it. So if you hear something in this conversation and you feel like you're being attacked or you're taking it personally, I want you to to stop for a second, sit with that and think about why you're feeling that way and realize that this isn't personal. Realize that this is work that we all have to do. The other issue that we're going to discuss today is an issue that is very intertwined with racial issues in this country, and that is the issue of gun violence, gun access, the Second Amendment, all those kinds of things. Syrah has started a group called Here for the Kids, and their website is here for the number four, thekids.com. Here, number four, thekids.com. They are just getting started now, but you'll hear Syrah is very passionate about the gun issue in this country as well. And it is all tied into race and, frankly, capitalism and a lot of the things that, you know, I've talked about with other guests on this podcast or written about in the newsletter. And when you start to understand all these kind of hidden systems that are at play, they're not separate, discrete things. Racism, misogyny, gun violence, homophobia. It's all kind of one thing. It's about power. It's about money. It's about control. And I mean, honestly, like I see a lot of parallels to to the food stuff that I talk a lot about too. You know, how we get our food, farming, equity in farming, equity in food access. All of that is, is tied into these bigger issues as well. So there's really not an issue in this country right now that isn't somehow also related to race and racism. It's the foundation upon which this country is built. And I think we have a choice now to keep putting bricks and sticks and whatever on top of that foundation, or to finally acknowledge that it's not working and to start tearing it down. So that is the work that Cyrus doing. I'm very grateful for that work. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for her time for this conversation. And I hope you take something away from it. If you're interested in this Definitely follow Syra on social media. Definitely check out Here for the Kids, Deconstructing Karen, White Women. Lots of things to check out on Syra's end. And before we get to the interview, let me just remind you that I have a newsletter as well. It's a companion to this podcast. I talk about all sorts of issues, sometimes very mundane, sometimes very big things. But uh, check it out if you're interested in this show. It's heathrasala.com slash newsletter, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. Make sure you give me your email address, get on the list for the newsletter, get that twice a week in your inbox, every episode of the podcast delivered to your inbox, and there's paid options as well, which gets you early access to the podcast and some member-only posts. It's good stuff. Check it out. Here it is, my conversation with Syra Rao. So I guess I want to start with the book, White Women. It's been interesting. So I read it uh, as part of a book group at my kid's school, and it really spoke to me. And uh, I've shared it with a lot of people now and tried to get them to read it. 
And it's kind of interesting thinking about like you and Regina's journey as authors, because on the one hand, like functionally, it's a very easy read. Like it's, it's less than 200 pages. It goes fairly quickly. And I think you're both very concise in, in the arguments in the book. But on the other hand, it's a very difficult book to get through. I think for a lot of people, especially just because it is bringing up content that's so new to a lot of people. Even as you say, it's it's something that people kind of inherently know, but they don't always acknowledge. And I, I guess I wonder, just starting there with the choice of sort of how you laid out the book the way you did and, and making it the way that it is. Yeah, thank you. So a uh, white woman bought the book. So the editor of our book is a white woman. Uh-huh. And when she bought it, she said very specifically, and I thought it was very interesting because I've worked in publishing for a long time. She said it has to be a paperback and it has to be 70% the length of a regular book Okay, because this is going to be a very hard pill to swallow. People are going to want to throw the book. People are going to want to ball it up. And I said, fine, whatever. Like, I frankly, I was stunned that anybody bought it. Yeah. And that like sort of the sale process is it, it's another story. But when we were turning in chapters... She said to us over and over and over again, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down. And at one point, I'm like, my goodness, <laughs> are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. She was right. She was absolutely right because the version that's out there now is super distilled and truly kind of made me want to choke a little bit, like yeah. half basic. And still, Heath, we're, we're getting, you know... I had to sit with that chapter for, for two weeks and back to it's meant to be able to be read over the course of a day or two. And a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are listening to it sort of on a marathon. Yeah. The woman who did marketing for us at Penguin said it was one and she's been in the business for a long time. She was one of like one or two books ever in her career where she read the whole thing from start to finish yeah. and to vomit along the way, but couldn't stop reading it. And it made her feel sick. So it's doing something. The way it's it's laid out is certainly doing something. A lot of people are reading it multiple times. I think that was also part of it is make it as short and concise. People said the first reading, it took them weeks. The second one, less so. The third one, less so. And now they're like, now it's starting to sink in kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely, I, I went back to it for this interview. I read it this spring and it was uh, as part of this book group, it was over the course of several weeks. So I think we met every other week and would do about two chapters at a time and use the discussion questions at the end to kind of prompt the conversation. But then I've talked a lot with my wife about it. She works in a school uh, and brought it to her school and presented there. And, like It's been interesting, kind of the ripple effect of it. But at any rate, she and I have talked a lot about it over the last several months. And then in booking this interview, it was like, okay, I'm going to read it again. And there was a lot in there that I don't know if I missed it the first time or there is something about reading it multiple times that like there's a lot in there. Let me ask you this. How did it over with your book club? Number one, is your wife white? No, she's she's South Asian. So the school she works at, it's about half black teachers and half white and, and other race teachers, I guess. The, okay. the student body is predominantly black. And it was interesting that they didn't all read the book at first. My wife and a small group of people presented it. And a lot of the white people had reactions similar to, to what you see in the film, where, you know, they're kind of outraged with it, or, or there's a very visceral reaction, which I think eventually came down. And for a lot of people, they kind of had to check themselves. But then for the black teachers, a lot of them came to my wife afterwards and said, hey, you really gave words and, and Syra and Regina really gave words to something that I had experienced my whole life. And th- that was her experience. For us, it was it was a book club at my kid's school. It's a private school, mostly white. It, it was a mostly uh, female 
book group, I was interested in the book and was like, can I join and uh, was a part of it. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot for people to sit with sometimes, especially people that have not had to acknowledge it before. Of course. And I feel like some of that, and you get into this in the book, but there's a there's a kind of semantic piece to it where people's initial response is like, I'm not racist because I don't use the N-word, because I'm not in the KKK, <laughs> you know, like thinking of really extreme versions of racism. But you define it very differently and talk about white supremacy and racism in a way that like we're all kind of complicit in it. I wonder if you would just like for the sake of the listeners, describe how you define racism. Sure. I mean, what we talk about in the book is that white supremacy is it's everything. It's the water. It's the sun. It's the moon. This is a country founded on it. Yeah. This country is founded on the genocide of indigenous people, the genocide and enslavement of African people. And then from there. It's Chinese Exclusion Act, Operation Wetback, Muslim ban, Japanese internment. These are things. Whipping Haitian refugees at the border, ICE detention centers. These are actual things. All of it is white supremacy. What is white supremacy? It's the myth that white people are better than everybody else. That's it's in, it distilled in a nutshell. Oh my God, it's complicated. It's complicated. No, it's not. Yeah. It's very simple. That's all it is. Your feelings about it and your role, your feelings about your role in it might be complicated, but that's essentially it. And so the show Friends, Barbie, the movie, Taylor Swift, look at every president we've ever had. Look yeah. at Western notions of beauty. All of it is white supremacy. So at the extreme, if there's a triangle Regina always talks about. At the top of it is genocide. Yeah. Right. And at the bottom is indifference and jokes and i don't see color and 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 all these other things you don't get to genocide without taylor swift and barbie and friends yeah and until and unless people can acknowledge that misogyny at the top of misogyny is rape and murder of women there's a whole lot of shit that happens at the bottom including men you know you don't have to be the dude in the room making jokes about women's bodies yeah and commenting about women's bodies but I can tell you, Heath, and I, my husband, I can tell him too. You all have been in plenty of rooms where those quote jokes have been made, and you've been silent as fuck. Yeah, you're not whatever the Harvey Weinstein. I hope. Yeah, I don't know. You're not Harvey Weinstein, but you all have acted towards making Harvey Weinstein possible. So too goes with white supremacy. It's all built, and at the top is the KKK. But all the silence. All of the silence along the way, all of the jokes along the way, all of the I don't see color along the way, all of the white private schools along the way, all of your white neighborhoods and your white vacations and your white fraternities and your white sororities along the way lends itself and makes the KKK possible. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's intense what you just said. And like I'm feeling that myself even is just like, oh, how much of that am I complicit in and how much of that? Have I experienced? And, and this is after reading the book two times, too, and, you know, kind of watching the film and like being exposed to your work. I think for people that are listening to this for the first time and, and don't know you and don't know your work, like how do they begin to make sense of that? I guess it, like when you do these dinners with people, like how do people begin to digest what you just presented? Sure. And I want to say me, too. Yeah, I'm a South Asian woman, so I am on the receiving end of racism and xenophobia. I'm on the giving end of xenophobia. 
and anti-black racism. Yeah. It is acknowledging the power structure. That is all racism is, is the power structure. That is all sexism is, the power structure. Who is at the top? White people. Who is at the bottom? Black people. The rest of us are somewhere in between, as Isabel Wilkerson would say in her book, Cast. If you haven't read it, please do. Yeah. We are middle caste. Asians, me and your wife are middle caste. We play a very particular role. The model minority myth was created by white people for a very specific reason, to keep black people down, to keep white people up, and to keep us in the middle position. Some of us get confused, myself included, where we think, oh my God, we're actually white adjacent. Yeah. Became very clear to me on September 11, 2001, when I was walking up into the stairs of the World Trade Center. That day, I was. I was a third-year law student at NYU. I was going to my law clinic, which was every Tuesday morning that fall right next door to the World Trade Center. I left my apartment as a model minority. I came home bleeding, shoeless, many, many, many hours later as a terrorist. So that's how quickly we we know that we're not white adjacent. It's whiteness is shape shifting to to be always in service of whiteness. So it's recognizing where you sit in the power structure. So as cis, straight, able-bodied men, white men, you sit at the top. It's fact. It's not even open to discussion. Trans black women sit at the bottom. And the rest of us are somewhere in between. So how do you start the work? Recognize that. Understand that. Believe that. Acknowledge that. So then when you walk into any room, wherever you are, you can make sure that you protect yourself from those who can commit violence against you, from those above you. And you can check yourself from, you know, committing harm against those beneath you. That's it. That's all this is. And people in power lose their fucking minds over it. Like, literally, that's not me. That's me. I I voted for Hillary Clinton. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? Yeah. I mean, really, it's, it's nonsense. We don't have any ability in this country to have these conversations by design. We're not supposed to have these conversations. If you don't have the conversations, you can't change anything. We had a dinner. Regina and I were just in South Florida together this past weekend. It was it was great. It was a lovely dinner. But, you know, we're sitting there and it's 2023. And we're in a state where, like, there are book bans, where there's ban on black history, yeah. where they're banned on trans humans. Yeah. And these white women will be like, oh, my God, I wrote this on Facebook and so-and-so said something and then it hurt hurt my feelings. And then I said this and she said this. And what are we supposed to do? And Regina and I are like, what? Yeah. I mean, it's 2023. Like, we need to all be in a fight for our lives right now. This is not even 2019 when we started this company. Right. We're aging in dog years in this country and people are still 10 billion steps behind. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think a part of that, of, of having the conversation that you talk about, it, like there are these kind of hidden structures in place, I guess, or, or hidden kind of etiquette, I guess. I mean, you talk in the book about like nice versus kind and just people want to be nice, but not necessarily kind and sort of how niceness, it's a its a protector to white supremacy ultimately, right? Yeah. I mean, what I would say is kindness is synonymous with humanity yep. and niceness is synonymous with white supremacy culture, which is not doing anything to hurt people's feelings and hurting people's feelings is calling them out in real time when they say or do things that are racist, sexist, xenophobic, transphobic, so Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, all those things. What does it look like in real time? You're sitting at dinner and your neighbor says something about, oh, you know, those bad schools. Heath, you and I know what a bad school is. Yeah. Sketchy school, sketchy neighborhood, ghetto. Yeah. So ghetto. You know, I know, and we don't say anything. 
just change the subject, pass the Brussels sprouts, yeah. whatever, laugh, sometimes laugh, whatever, because it's uncomfortable. That's nice. Sometimes it's even more overt. Someone will say the N-word. Someone might say terrorist about someone who looks like me or your wife. You know, it's um, lazy. You know how lazy those yard workers are. We know who they're talking about, talking about the Latino yard workers. We don't say anything. By not saying anything, it's the exact same, functionally the exact same as being the person who says it. So there's an old saying from Nazi Germany, a Nazi at the table and 10 people sitting with him silently. There are 11 Nazis at the table. That's nice. Kindness. Regina and I would argue that our work is the dictionary definition of kindness because asking people to recognize our humanity and necessarily their humanity. White culture has robbed white people of your humanity. White people have been robbed of humanity. So let's just go back to the foundation of this country. White folks in this country come, white folks around the world, by the way, it doesn't even matter if it's this country. History of global colonialism, capitalism, imperialism, all of it. It's not good, yeah, you know? Sure. Your bloodline, your ancestors have committed horrible shit. That's in your bones. Sure. Like for black folks in this country, carry trauma from chattel slavery. You know, South Asian diaspora, South Asians everywhere carry the trauma of British colonialism and genocide. We all carry that trauma. So necessarily, if we can wrap our brains around black and brown and indigenous folks carry the trauma that has been inflicted upon us by white people, therefore necessarily, ergo, whatever word you want to use, white people, the oppressors, so too carry the trauma of being the murderers. You just do. Mm. Your humanity has been robbed. And so kindness, being kind to yourself is not getting a pedicure. That's the whole con of the self-help business. Oh, my God, go get a manicure, get a pedicure, get a massage. No, actually start recognizing your own humanity. Get in touch with your own humanity. And once you do, you too can be kind and you're absolutely going to inflict less harm upon those beneath you in the power structure. Yeah. I mean, you talk about community as well as a big piece of this. And that comes up, you know, you talk about like white women sitting at a table and one gets up to use the bathroom and they all trash talk each other. You know, the person comes back, next person goes and they trash talk that person. And that there's kind of this veneer of community or this feeling of, you know, the people that you're, you're quote unquote close to, but that people are always in competition with each other. I mean, this is a theme you talk about coming up again and again at your dinners too. Like people say, we hate ourselves and each other more than we are racist, I guess, right? Like that, help me understand, I guess, that piece of it, of just white community versus true community. I would say white community in brackets. Yeah. So perfectionism is the foundation of white womanhood. You gotta be the best. Best looking, youngest, thinnest, best house. I mean, how long do white women spend trying to pick? Is Oh my God, is it wallpaper or paint? Yeah. And then you settle on and then how many months do you spend and dollars do you spend? Um, the amount of time and energy spent on crisp, perfect holiday cards, all that, right? Perfectionism. Necessarily, that means you have to be in competition with each other to mm. be the most perfect. That's it. Yeah. There's so much shit talking. I used to be a white woman. I mean, I write about this too. And so yeah. I know I've been in these rooms. I participated in these conversations. And there's no true friendship. There is no true community because as Regina said, it's funny when she and I started this business and and I said, I feel like you're mad at me or you said something about me behind my back. And she goes, I don't need your back to talk about you. <laughs> and we we don't we don't talk about each other behind. It's a revelation to actually be in relationship with people 
and I have a I have a big community now. Yeah. We're not necessarily friends. Everyone in my community is not necessarily my friend, but we have shared values. And so what does that mean is we talk about values. We talk about issues. We talk about a new life. We talk about overthrowing these systems of, of oppression. We don't sit around talking about, have you noticed she gained five pounds or she lost five? She's too thin. She's too fat. She's too this. She's too that. That's all white women do all the time. It doesn't breed community. Everyone is so scared about what people think because they know that people are talking about them. How do they know? Because they're doing it to them. Case in point, sort of the most perfect example, this is guns in this country. How do we know that we've lost white people don't have humanity? Do you know that guns are the number one killer of kids and teens in America? Guns are the number one killer, including white children. So throughout the book, we talk about how white supremacy hurts white people too. This is it. We have guns in this country because of white supremacy. That is why we have the Second Amendment. Second Amendment was 1791. What was happening in this country in 1791? That was a gift to slave owners to have the right to massacre their enslaved people. Mm. Proliferation of guns in this country. Every time white people get scared of people who look like me and black people, Obama, 9-11, Ferguson, George Floyd, all of it, right? Guns are the number one killer of kids in this country, including white kids. White supremacy is the number one killer of white children in this country. What are white people doing about it? What are white people doing about it? Nothing. Yeah. So we started a movement called Here for the Kids. We had our first action in Denver, Colorado, June 5th of this year, demanding an executive order to ban guns and buy them back. We're going to have another action next June. There'll be more about that. But I I implore when white people are like, what do we do? What do we do? We don't know. We're so, oh my God, what do we do? (laughs) Go to hereforthekids.com and there will be explicit instructions in terms of what you white people and what everybody can do next June to actually end this. And when we end guns in America, when we end guns in America, it's the beginning of the end of white supremacy in America. Guns and white supremacy are synonymous. Mm, because of the violence that can be inflicted by guns. Yeah. How do you think that white people have maintained hegemony uh, here and abroad? It's the military. Yeah. All America is right now, it's a police state here, and it's it's a genocidal monster abroad. That's yeah. our power. What the fuck does America do besides kill other people? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up Here for the Kids, because I, I did want to ask you about that and sort of the the overlap of all these different issues, I guess. And to some extent, I guess, the action behind it. I mean, you mentioned marching and things, but like, I, I know you wrote this piece for Huffington Post about breaking up with the Democratic Party years ago. And like, just that feeling of like, should we be expecting action from our leaders, I guess, or? Yes. Yeah. The answer, yes. The answer is yes. Of course. <laughs> so what we have in this country is the political theater. Yep. And so, you know, Matt Gates or AOC is asking people for money. And obviously, they're at the opposite end of whatever spectrum we want to call it. Sure. For that money, we, we pay them, you know, to be to represent us. What do they do for us, Heath? You know what they do? They tweet at each other or they X at each other, whatever the fuck we're calling that. <laughs> platform now they tweet at each other you're this you're that you're this you're that i don't there's no health care for everybody yeah there's no housing there's no water maui just burned down joe biden had no comment about that so what we've done is the democrats are just owning the repugs and the republicans are mocking and belittling the democrats when both parties i want to say this very clearly both parties are far-right parties. Hmm. One party happens to be neo-Nazi, openly and proudly, and the other one is whole, is propping it up. So if we're even looking at it like this, 
the Republican Party is white men and the Democratic Party is white women. Hmm. One is holding up the other. Neither. We didn't even have a floor vote on Medicare for all during a pandemic with both houses of Congress being Democrats and the White House being Biden and, and Harris. Yeah. What's the first thing Kamala Harris, half black, half South Asian woman did? She went down to Central America and looked at brown people and said, do not come. Do not come. We had Haitian refugees whipped at the border on Biden's watch. It's the same. Yeah, It's the same. Sure. Donald Trump is the is the KKK of it all. But Joe Biden is one of the architects of the school to prison pipeline. So it's a fiction. It's political theater. Yeah. And so what we do is they're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. So everything stays the same. What we have to do as people with brains and hearts and a connection between the two, the connection is very important, is say, my goodness, we actually have to demand the people that we put in power and that we pay, that we pay tax dollars to pay their salaries and their pensions to do what they say they're going to do. So Joe Biden said that he was not going to give any more permits for drilling on federal land, period, period, period. So today... He has given more permits for federal drilling than Trump. Why are we allowing that? Why? Because he can do whatever the fuck he wants because he's never been held to account. Mm. He's never been held to account. The squad promised a whole bunch of things. They haven't done it. They haven't even proposed it. They're off giving big speeches and lectures and, you know, this and that. And then what are they doing? I I know members of the squad. We've reached out. To members of the squad who take our took our, to, used to take my calls when I was giving them money, yeah. And now that I'm like, hey, Jabal Bowman, you know, I would like to talk to you about guns. He's off grandstanding about guns, but when asked to have a meeting with us about banning guns, ghosting, mm. ghosting. So we need to have something called collective action. We need to actually uprise and force the people that we have elected to office to do something. It is intellectually dishonest for us to say well we just that we we vote we vote we know that it doesn't work yeah albert einstein said the dictionary definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result we have all we are grown-ass adults we have all voted many many times and have not gotten a different result maybe voting's not going to do it voting's the floor i'm not advocating for not voting so hugh cyrus a russian operative <laughs> cyrus trying to get donald trump elected no yeah Voting is the floor. Yeah. We need to actually now go force the people that we've voted for and who have won their elections to do shit. And that is what Here for the Kids is. And if you can't show up to save your children from getting murdered at school or the mall or the movie theater, you're not going to show up for anything. So we can forget about reproductive health rights. We can forget about trans kids. We can forget about book bans. We can forget about everything. If we cannot show up to demand that the people who we elected to do a job will not protect our kids from a gruesome, violent death, everything else is uh, is off the table. There's no hope. We have we have literally thrown in the towel. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And it 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 drives me to to action. And it also it makes me, I guess, realize sort of how intertwined all of these issues are. That like if, yeah, if you if you fight guns you're fighting racism. You're fight like, and and you mentioned capitalism before. I That's mean, it. Yeah, it's all, it's all part of it. Like the, but but it requires a whole new system. I think you can't live with these past assumptions and continue on. Heath, I don't know how else to put this, and I've been on calls all morning about this because we're literally it, deep in the second action. Yeah, 
Maui burned to the ground last week yeah. and Joe Biden had no comment. There have been two, we're averaging two mass shootings a day and the media is not covering it. Yeah. It is over. It is a wrap on humanity. If we cannot stop guns and if we cannot stop fossil fuels, we will all be dead. I don't, there's, this is not hyperbole. Yeah. This is fact. This is actual fact. So people at this juncture who don't understand this are being purposefully obtuse, are choosing to not hear this. And if you have enough money to have a roof over your head and have food on the table and you can pay health care bills and you can put clothes on your back and your kids' backs and you have enough money for a Starbucks coffee or a vacation, you have no fucking excuse not to get in this game. It is not my job. I cannot tell you how it makes my skin crawl when I hear people say to me, thank you so much for what you're doing. If they're not doing anything, if they are doing something great, thank you also. But people who have spent their summers vacationing, I've gone on vacations. There's nothing wrong on vacation. I'm, I'm not one of these people like I have. I have nice things, yeah. you know, but people who have spent their summers vacationing without lifting a goddamn finger to do anything. They're not writing checks. If you're not going to do anything but write checks, fine. That's something. Write a check. But in my DMs, thank you so much for what you're doing. Oh my gosh, you're such a great activist. We all need to be activists. Your kids are going to die too. You're going to die too. The Titanic has hit the iceberg. It has broken in half. And 98% of people right now are like, I think I'm going to send my steak back to get cooked a little more. Rather than how the fuck am I going to save myself? Yeah, That's what I can't get. It, this is not even a, when people are like, I want to be an ally, a white ally. Really? Because you need to save your ass too and your kids. You're not doing me a favor. This is saving yourself. And white people are still so stuck in this white allyship, white saviorism. Your kids are getting murdered too. Yeah, You're getting shot in groceries also. Like Maui, like... Denver, two neighborhoods right outside of Denver burnt down two Christmases ago. That, those were white neighborhoods. Yeah. Million dozen are white neighborhoods. So you either are going to get in the game or you're not. And we are begging people, get in this fight. Join us. You can write checks. You can organize. You can volunteer. Buy t-shirts. Wear them. There's so many different things you can do. You don't have to do all of it. Just pick one or two things and do it. Yeah. Build it into your life. I mean, I think what you're saying, too, is you've got to start somewhere. That like yeah. you can't let the fear of, of messing up or the paralyzation of I'm going to do something wrong stop you from doing something. It doesn't have to be everything, but it's got to be something. The only wrong move is doing nothing at all. Let me ask you this because of just the urgency that you just painted, because I agree with you. And, and my wife and I were talking about this the other day as well, of just like this unsettling feeling of we don't know that our kids have a future necessarily, you know, the planet or gun violence, like all the, all these issues are, are very scary for us. What's different in your mind about 2023 than the 1960s or the civil war period or, you know, other times in, in history where there have been major upheavals and, and tumult in this country? So by the way, I, even the words you just used, this very unsettling feeling that you just said it's so deadpan, this very unsettling <laughs> feeling that our kids might not have a future. Like yeah. that's how... It's a terrifying reality that our kids will not have clean drinking water yeah. and food. Yeah. It's a terrifying feeling if they're alive because maybe they're going to be shot and killed. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't even make the news. Wouldn't even make the news. What's different? 
the oppressed have always been fighting for survival. So there's no difference here. I would say there are a couple of differences now. Is that at some point, we have what's called end-stage capitalism and end-stage white supremacy. And we're seeing it now. Look at the titan that sunk. Billionaires are so rich that they have a quarter of a million dollars to spend to go down on a submersible altogether with tape and like staples essentially and it it exploded i mean that's like a metaphor and p.s i was not on the i did not jump on the bandwagon in fact that whole thing was a metaphor for everything that's wrong with what's happening right now just even in in general going to see the titanic right but also the glee with which how many people really reveled in, in those people's horrendous death what i can only imagine was a horrendous death this is the we've all lost our we our souls have been snatched yeah. right the difference is selma white folks that was allyship right because white people had no problem voting it was black people who had problem voting yeah. so the people who white folks who jumped on buses and cars or whatever who came did that for somebody else this is very different. We're not even asking white people to come on for our sakes. This is to save yourselves. White people are now getting eaten alive by capitalism. Rich people are getting eaten alive by capitalism. White people are getting eaten alive by white supremacy. Rich people are like, it has now come. These systems of oppression eventually always eat themselves. Yeah. And we are now at that stage. That's number one. Guns did not exist in the 60s like they do now. Sure, they were around, but now there are way, way, way more guns than people, and that was not the case in the 60s. And the capacity and the firepower and all, yeah. Not, none of it, yeah. none of it. And climate catastrophe was not where it is. Yeah. So there are some actual qualitative substantive things that are different, guns and climate and white supremacy eating itself. That's right, but people have always had to survive, and I would argue this. Even white people now are oppressed by all of this, by guns, by climate, by the very systems you have created. Yeah. Oppressed people have always had to fight to survive. You all are just not familiar with it because you've never been in this scenario. So trying to get you all to do something that you literally don't know. how. All you all know how to do is oppress. You do not know how to fight against oppression. What this is, is fighting against the whiteness within you. This is our work. You have to actually extract the whiteness from you to find your humanity so you can fight for yourselves and for your children. That's all this is. And it sounds easy, but when white people in 2023 cringe at the words white people, it's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. I mean, that's even just that of of seeing white as a race is something you talk about in the book. I mean, that's kind of the first step in all this is being able to say white people, being able to describe yourself as a white person and not cringe at that. I mean, it's, as you talk about, it's just kind of these systems, I guess, that are in place to to keep the power. Let me give you a really basic example that happened like six years ago. Yeah. One of my former white friends who I write about in the book from college, she said to me, and we're not, you know, we don't talk anymore, but this is back in the day when I was even entertaining this nonsense. And she said to me, I just don't know why you have to keep saying white people. Why do I have to be a white person? And I said to her, we'll call her Becky. I said, Becky, you call me your brown friend all the time. And she was like, but you are. And I'm like, yeah, I'm brown. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a friend. And she said, yes. And I was like, and I'm, but you're 
my white friend, she was like, but why do I have to be white? But I was like, but I, you say I'm brown. She was like, but you are. And I'm like, but you're white. Yeah. And she was like, it just sounds offensive. So that is how deeply white people think that white people are the default. So you're just people and the rest of us are racialized. And that's where we start. If white people can't see themselves as white people and as racialized people, there's nowhere to go from here. Yeah. That's that's the most foundational work that needs to happen. I want to ask you just a little bit about your own journey, too, because you posted something this morning on social media that was really interesting to me. Just this idea that it's been 15 years now since you left a, a, a law firm and a prestigious law firm, I think they described it after going to a prestigious law school and started doing this work. I'm curious for you sort of what that moment looked like 15 years ago and where where this kind of seed was planted for you. So I went to NYU Law, a very fancy law school. Sure. My first and only black teacher I've ever had in my life was Brian Stevenson there. He was my professor at NYU Law. I clerked on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia, one rung below the U.S. Supreme Court. I worked at Cleary Gottlieb. So in, in law parlance, in the universe of law, I literally am, you know, top of the top of the top of the top. Yeah. First week on the job at Cleary, I went to a party on the Upper East Side of Manhattan with all the super liberals. And I walked in and the white dude who owns the house, he, I walked in, he goes, you're Indian. And I said, yes. And he, and he clapped, cobras and elephants. And everybody started laughing and it was so deeply humiliated. I was put right back in my fucking place. Yeah. And what did I do? I, I grabbed a glass of champagne and laughed and took a sip and and then he went on to tell me about his, you know, safari trip that he took to India. These are Democrats. These are New York City Democrats. So even somebody who's at the top of their game, I was put in my place immediately. I knew exactly, you know, exactly where I was. But so I left that profession. I didn't gel with it, but I didn't start this work. It still took me a long time. This is how deeply conditioned we are. Yeah. It's how, how deeply conditioned we are. I didn't start this work in earnest, I would say, until 2016, 2017. So it's been recent, pretty recent. Every step of the way, it has been, you're crazy, you're insane. This is insane. You don't leave. And I was on my way. I, it didn't agree with me because I had an allergic reaction to working on Wall Street at this big law firm. Yeah. You're crazy. You're insane. What are you doing? You know. And then I ran for Congress in 2018. You're crazy. You're insane. What do you do? Every single step down to last year. Even when this book had been bought, our editor left Penguin Random House. The white male publisher of Penguin Books took over the book. And he basically, Regina and I said to his face last spring, this book is going to be a New York Times bestseller. He like basically laughed. And he said, I just want you to know that like people think that we're crazy. Like our colleagues in other houses, what he was basically saying is people within Penguin Random House think we're crazy for publishing this book and he was like i just want to manage your expectations in terms of and we're like okay 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 guess what happened yeah. in the first week of the book coming out it is a new york times bestseller so we it's it's you're crazy you're crazy you're crazy and that's just straight up aside from being ableist you know that's straight up gaslighting because what's crazy is that we have all come to accept oppression what's crazy is bulletproof backpacks what is crazy is police beating and murdering black people every day. What's crazy is ICE concentration camps. But those of us who are fighting these things are considered crazy. This is deprogramming. We yeah. all have to be deprogrammed. We've been pro we're like Russia. We've been propagandized to the hilt. And so our work now 
with here for the kids, your work, Keith, as a human with children is to deprogram ourselves and help other people deprogram themselves. We have to believe and know that it's not crazy to repeal the Second Amendment, the murderer of our children. What's crazy is that we have grown accustomed to sending our kids into death camps at school. That's what's crazy. Yeah. In this work, I'm sure you have to acknowledge there's some portion of people you're probably never going to reach. I don't know if that's 30% or 50% or, you know, yeah. 70. Yeah. I have no idea and what it is. Five, but, 80%. Yeah. But yeah. like, what is it that keeps it going for you? And if you're able to reach that 5% of people or whatever it is, and it starts like, do you imagine there's a time where all of this work that you're doing starts to tip the scale and starts to change things? Or are you, are you seeing that, I guess? So number one, what else is there? Yeah. Why are we on this planet? Like, what's the purpose? I have to believe there's more to life than, you know, $8 oat milk lattes and fancy cars and vacations. Other, like, if we're not here to protect our children and the next generation and species and plants like what is like i don't i don't i I mean that it's not trying to be funny i don't know what the purpose of life is so i don't know how everybody is not in this game yeah i really and and i can tell you the people who are obsessed with money and stuff and vacations are dead inside because i know those people tipping the scales we started tipping the scales we came up with i came up with the idea for here for the kids march 27th the night of the nashville public school shooting did my first Zoom public April 10th. And the call to action at that time was cis white women who were the most powerful and privileged demographic in America. Wanted 20,000 of them to show up. 3,500 showed up. That's a shit ton of people in seven weeks. We are yeah. tipping the scales. We're about to 122 unique press hits, you know, 100,000 copies of our book sold. We're doing town hall in New York City for Deconstructing Karen. October 27th, I hope you and your wife come and your kids from Massachusetts, a 1,500-person theater off-Broadway. I mean, we've gone global. We cannot even keep up with the amount of people who want us to do podcasts and TV spots and come, you know, show our movie. We are tipping the scale. The book came out last November. The movie came out last November. I mean, it's just we're just kind of getting started here, and it's working. So if you, like what you said, you were in a book club, look at the ripple effect from you reading the book. Yeah. How many people you've gotten and then how many of those people have gotten and how many of those people have gotten. We will get there. We know that something like 25 percent of the population needs to have a shift in thinking to have a tectonic shift in policy. We have nine and a half months till next June. This has got to be before the November election to convince 25 percent of this population that banning guns is not extreme. Not banning guns is extreme. So we have our work cut out for us. What we are asking the yous and everybody else who has a platform, showcase it, talk about it, bring it up, share posts, get people to follow us, get people to you know sign up for emails. That's what organizing is. That is what community organizing is. We're not going to like boil the ocean in one day. Yeah. You know, well, the ocean is boiling, so that's probably a bad example. But like everyone's got a part to play, and we will get there as long as people like you, Heath, come along and keep talking about this stuff. Yeah, and I, I should add too on the book club piece, like there's a ripple before me of there was a a mother who brought it to us at our school because she had done it as a separate book club and just said, this is great. I want to bring it to this school. And then my wife brought it. Like it, it, it is amazing kind of how it ripples. And I'm sure you see that in all your work. And if you can then email everybody in your book club and say, here's here for the kids.com, please sign up for emails and follow on social media and donate. And then, and like, that's where you start that ripple effect. Yeah. 
in all of this, do you still have hope? Of course, I wouldn't be doing this. If I didn't have hope, (laughs) I would seriously go hit the, you know, go sit on a beach somewhere for a while. I mean, if I didn't have hope, that's all I have. All I have is hope. All right, there we go. Syra Rao. How about that? (laughs) I, I, I love her. She does amazing work. It's such a necessary voice right now. And I think she's putting good things out into the world. Thank you for making it through this conversation today. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope this is the beginning of something for you. If you're new to this work, I hope this is not the end. I hope that you'll check out the book, White Women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. Maybe make it a book group. I was part of a book group. It was amazing. There are discussion questions at the back of the book. It helps facilitate conversations like that. It, it that is That is really worthwhile. Maybe host a screening of Deconstructing Karen. Check that out. And go to Here for the Kids. Sign up there. Get on their list. Here for the number four, thekids.com. Here for the kids.com. And as Cyrus said, it takes a little bit of action to start tipping those scales. You start shifting that Overton window. And you start making some meaningful change. So I hope that's what's coming. I really do. My thanks to Cyrus Rao for being here today great conversation. Go check out her work. Go read up more. I've said it, but I mean it. And I'm at Heath Rosella on all the social platforms. Let's connect over there and let's talk soon. Stay safe. <laughs>